Welcome to the Living Rock Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us to listen to this message. Whoever you are and wherever you're listening from, we trust that you'll be equipped, envisioned and encouraged as you listen today. So I understand over the last few months, we've been going through the Supernatural Church here. I hope that series is really blessing you. Uh, And more than that, I hope it's really engaging you, um, because we are a supernatural church. Um, We're part of a supernatural kingdom. We've been singing a lot about the kingdom this morning, and I've got a title. There it is. A kingdom that cannot be shaken is what I'd like to talk to us about this morning. Um, Because the kingdom of God is a supernatural kingdom, but it comes through a supernatural church. As has already been said this morning, the church is the gateway of heaven. It's how the kingdom of God interacts with the the seen realm, with the world. It's how the kingdom of God is received, is through us, through the church. We're God's means for God's kingdom to spread throughout this whole earth and the whole cosmos. How exciting is that? And it's God's plan, as we're going to see this morning, is to shake everything of creation so that the kingdom of God will emerge out of that. And that's God's plan for history. It's exciting, it's a bit scary, but there's nothing to fear. But it is going to be really exciting in the days ahead. And I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I've been reading through the book of Hebrews in the last few months, and I really want to encourage you to give Hebrews a try. Um, At first glance, it can seem a little bit off-putting. There's lots of stuff there about the temple and about the sacrificial system, and you think, oh gosh, this looks like Leviticus. It's it's nothing like Leviticus. In fact, someone's come along and said, you see all of that stuff? I'm going to take you through it and show you what it was pointing towards, what it really means, the spiritual lessons that you need to learn from all that stuff. So it's a great handbook to what's in the Old Testament. So I really want to encourage you, give Hebrews a try. It's a really great book. So we're going to look at chapter 12, and we're going to dive in at verse 18. I wait for the rustling to die down. I'm going to be reading from the ESV this morning. Any ESV fans in the room? Woohoo! Just two, three, four. Any raise on four? No, okay. I'm guessing most of you might be NLT. Any NLTs in the room? Let's just have a straw poll. Yeah, mostly NLT. A few NIVs? NIVs? Yep, a few faithful NIVs. There we go. Dave seems to be doing both. I don't know how he's managing that. but um, Okay, so we're going to read from verse 18. And it says this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. How scary is that? For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, that's you lot, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, 
and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire." Wow, that's packed with stuff, isn't it? It's quite exciting. It's a bit scary, like I said. But you know what? Coming into the presence of God can be scary in a really good way. Um, And I just want to draw three things out of this passage for us today. Three things I want us to consider about the kingdom of God. And the first of them is this, the context in which we live. So if if you just go back in your Bibles to verse 18... In the first few verses here, the author is saying to us, you've not come to. And then in verse 22, he says, but you have come to. So in other words, the first few verses, the author is saying is, look, you've not come to what was, but you've come to now what is. And he's referring back to the Old Testament, and he's referring back to when God came down on the mountain, and the people of Israel were assembled around the mountain, and Moses was sent up the mountain. You wouldn't want to be in Moses' shoes, would you? Because fire and thunder and lightning came and the sound of a trumpet. Can you imagine how scary it was looking at the top of that mountain? And Moses went up there. And even Moses said, I'm terrified. He came with fear and trembling. But we haven't come to a place like that. When we come together, we don't come to a place that's scary like that. We come to a place where we're accepted. We're living in an age of grace because the kingdom has come and this is the time when God's grace and favour may be found. And praise God, we found it. That's why we rejoice when we come together. But there are so many other people out there who have yet to find it. And God's heart is that all men, all mankind would be saved. And that's why there is such a protracted age of grace that we're living in. You know, it can be easy sometimes to look at history in the way that man defines history. A bit earlier, we were in that room over there uh, for a prayer meeting, and on the wall, there is a chart, and the whole of the last 2,000 years are split up into history of the Greeks and the Romans and the Middle Ages, and then later on, the Normans and, and, and earlier than that, the Vikings and the Tudor period and the Industrial Revolution. And man carves up history in these sorts of periods usually the rise and fall of empires. But history isn't framed like that. That's just the perspective of fallen man. Actually, history is framed by God's dealings with mankind. And we are living in an age of grace. When the kingdom has come through Jesus, he's in heaven, but that grace is extended to the whole of the earth. The gospel is to go out to the four corners of the earth. And only when that age has come to an end will God say, it's enough. You've had enough time. Yeah. 
We should rejoice that we're living in an age of grace. And it's, what we should have is history, we should bear that in mind in the way that God views history. When we read the word, it shows us the way history is framed through the covenants that God has interacted with man through. And we should be careful not to get caught up in the moment. It's so easy to get caught up in the Brexit. Every, every single news item is somehow related to Brexit and everyone is getting caught up in this. But you know, as God's people, we're not insensitive to that, but we rise above that. And we see things from an eternal perspective. And we see that the things that happen in this world, that yes, they're serious and they affect our everyday lives and they affect the lives of those whom we love and our friends, but we can see God working through it all. We can see that God works throughout history for empires to rise and empires to fall, all so that his purposes may be served. You know, when Paul stood in front of the Arapagus, which was in Athens, a group of philosophers and wise men, he said, look, every empire has its time. It's allotted time, but it's God who decides when a power rises and when it falls to fit into his purposes. Well, praise God, we're in an age of grace. We don't now come to Mount Sinai. You know why it was so scary for them to come to that mountain? Is because they were full of sin. And God cannot abide sin. Because we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, we can come into his presence. But it's easy to forget sometimes the toxicity that sin has as far as God is concerned. God cannot go near sin. Sin is so toxic that it pollutes anything it touches. It's pervasive. And that's why when we read the Old Testament, we find time and again that people, when they came into interaction with God, it was a dangerous thing for them. It was a fearful thing because they were full of sin. And so for them, it posed a danger to approach a holy and unapproachable God. But praise God, we don't live like that because of the blood of Jesus. And in, the, in verse 22, it says, but you have come to Mount Sinai. Sorry, you have come to Mount Zion. We've not come to Mount Sinai. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Folks, when we come into the presence of God together, we are touching holy things. Now, I know that's not always something that we see or realize, but it's important that we understand that's what's happening. We're touching holy things. We're not coming into a copy here of a heavenly room up there. Earlier in this book, the author shows us that we're coming into what's called the true tent of the Lord. What went before in the Old Testament was a tent that was a copy, a pattern that Moses had been given of what was going on in heaven. And, And the Lord said, copy it down here and I will come down to you. You can't come to heaven, but I'll come down to you. And then later there was a temple built. And again, God's exacting standards were copying a reality that's in heaven. But we're told in the book of Hebrews that that's all changed now. Because Jesus went into the most holy place in heaven and held up his hands that were nail-scarred hands. And your name was written on those hands. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. Your name was written. And so he takes your name into the most holy place in heaven and stands there and said, see that name, Father? That's now covered in my blood. And that's why when we come together, your feet may be on the ground. Your feet may be standing on this tile, but your spirit 
is going into the heavenly realms. Now, I'm not talking about some kind of astral projection because the heavenly realms are all around us. Heaven is not a faraway place. It's the unseen realm. What you're seeing now when you're looking at me is only a little bit of the true picture. There is a heavenly realm all around us. And if you look at verse 23, just back end of 22, the author says this. Now, this is what happens when you come together to worship. It's really good to read this list and just tell yourself, this is what I'm coming into. The heavenly Jerusalem and to the innumerable angels in feast or gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn, that's you and me, who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. It's really good for us to keep the context in which we live in view. It's good for us to be grateful. Say, I'm really glad that I didn't live back then, but I've been born into a time when the kingdom of God is accessible, when Jesus has rescued me, when I can approach the most holy place, when I can go in knowing that my life, my name is enrolled up there, that I have a place, that I can walk in, not like I own the place, but like I belong in the place. This is my home. And I want to encourage you, whatever your experiences of worship, whether it's just in ones and twos or uh, small groups like a life group or all together like this, I want to encourage you to raise your expectations. I want you to seek the Lord and say, Lord, I want you to open my eyes to the reality of what's happening when I join with God's people and come into worship. And you know what? The Holy Spirit, with joy, will answer that prayer. He will open the eyes of your heart and start to show you things that will absolutely blow you away. And it will transform your experience of worship. Because you are a worshipper. We're all made as worshippers. And I know sometimes it can be easy to look across the room and say, yeah, but I can't worship like Benj. Or I can't worship like Steve. But do you know what? God has an experience for you. No less important, no less fulsome, no less exciting in the presence of God. And that's his promise to you. He wants to open your eyes to that. So the first thing is the context in which we live. And the second thing, which I just want us to consider, is the company in which we stand. It's really important that we recognise the company. We've just had a list of the company. Did you see what was in this list? This is a list of the great and the good. You know, if you got a, an invitation to go to a really important event like Buckingham Palace, you would feel honoured, wouldn't you? You'd feel yeah. maybe a little intimidated. Well, do you know what? When we come into the presence, yeah. guess what? That's all going on. He says that we come to innumerable angels in feastal gathering. What do you think that looks like? Innumerable angels. There are so many angels around the throne that if you stood there and counted them all, you couldn't. And they're all in feastal gathering. They're all celebrating. Why are they celebrating? Because there's someone that can break the scroll. scroll. There's someone that can open the scroll. Finally, the Lamb of God is there in all his resurrected glory. And all those angels are worshipping him. And when we come together, that's the company we're joining. How exciting is that? Do you know there are angels ministering in our gatherings? You may not see them, you may not be aware of them, but they are here. And the Lord wants to open your eyes. 
not these, but these, to perceive that angels are in our midst. Angels have been sent by the Lord to minister to us, to lead us to the place where he wants us to go. We're coming to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You know, the firstborn is Jesus, but it's also you. He's the firstborn among many brothers, but you're the firstborn because the firstborn is the inheritor. And you have inherited all that Jesus has. So when we come together, we stand in the company of one who has earned everything for us, but he says, it's all yours. As Phil reminded us this morning, a table is set before you. And Jesus says, this is my inheritance. When you come into my presence, I want you to see what's on the table. And I want you to take what's on the table, for it's yours. It's not there to stay on the table. You don't prepare a feast and then invite people to come and look at it, do you? (laughs) Could you just admire my volavons, my chicken wings, my blancmange? No, dive in. You want people to enjoy the feast that you've prepared. And do you know what? When we come together, Jesus wants us... to enjoy the feast he's prepared. So don't hold back. You know, if you need to close your eyes and shut everybody else out so you are uninhibited, do it. Do whatever you need to do to dive into that blamange and enjoy it. Because the Holy Spirit has a blamange for you. So you just need to enjoy it. So we stand in great company. God is there as judge. The good news is you needn't fear the judge. Because you've already been judged worthy when you came into the presence. You're part of the kingdom of God and you're covered in the blood of the Lamb. And there stands Jesus, the mediator, whose hands are raised, nail-scarred hands with your names written in them. You know, when you got saved, that wasn't a one-off event. I know we talk about it like an historical event, but it wasn't. It was the beginning of being saved. Because you are saved moment by moment. So every second that goes by, like that, is a moment you're being saved. And it doesn't mean that you're in danger, that you're about to fall off the edge of being saved, but it means that you need continual intercession by the blood of Jesus. And that's why when Paul writes to the Romans, he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What he's saying is is that that blood is constantly making an intercession for you moment by moment. What it requires of you is moment by moment trust in him. That you come into the presence and say, I know, Lord, that your blood is interceding for me right now so that I can stand here with my head held high. No matter what has happened, that does not affect the efficacy, the power of your blood to make me worthy to stand in this place with royal robes that I don't deserve and never did but I can stand here and not fear condemnation from God or man because I have a mediator. What joy to stand in the presence knowing that. And you know what? The Lord wants to give you an increasing revelation of what that means. You may have think you understood what it meant for Christ to be your mediator. But here's the thing. It's going to take you the rest of your lifetime for God to reveal to you the fullness of what that means. And every time a fresh revelation of that comes, it's going to blow you away. You're going to wake up and say, wow, I've just realized it in a whole new way that I hadn't before. And that's why there's continual praise in the house of God, because there are people in the house of God who are receiving a constant revelation of what God has done and the enormity of that. It's wonderful. Do you know, we also stand in the company of prophets, 
So if you just go back to the text, just go down a couple of verses, and you'll see that the writer to the Hebrews slips in a sneaky little quote here from the Old Testament. Now, normally they set them out in, um, in your Bibles in typeface, maybe it's centered on the page, you know, and you say, oh, that's an Old Testament reference. This one is kind of snuck into the text. I just want to encourage you, whenever you're reading the New Testament, and one of the writers has quoted from the Old Testament, go and find it. You might think, I haven't got time. It takes me long enough just to read the bit I'm on. Well, guess what? There is hidden treasure in there for you. Go and find it. Most good Bibles today will have a little footnote and it'll tell you where it's quoted. And the reason I'm telling you that is this. Because the original hearers of this message, the recipients of these letters, were brought up to, to know the Old Testament. The Jewish writers were writing in a way that they had learned when they were sent to the synagogue at a young age, which was that the rabbis would quote a section of the Old Testament in short form, but they would be inferring the context of what was there. But they would assume that the hearers knew the context. Now, we're going to be forgiven for not always knowing what the context is. I'm not saying you've got to memorise all of the Old Testament. Just go and find it. Because when you go and find it, you see what the writer had in mind when he or she decided that they were going to slip that little verse in there. So let's go and find the verse. The verse in Hebrews is verse 26. He says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, and here's the quote, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Now, has anyone got a footnote telling us where that is? Let's just see how good your Bibles are. There you go. So Abby just said Haggai 2 and verse 6. So I'm going to give you a little extra time to find Haggai. We're living in an age of grace. And you're not expected to know immediately where Haggai is. Towards the end of the Old Testament, you've got your major prophets, which means the longer prophetic books, and then you've got your minor prophets, which just means the shorter prophetic books, not the less important ones, just in case you wondered. Um, and, and Haggai just is before Zechariah, which is just before Malachi. So that's three from the end. I can't give you a better signposting than that, can I? I could say it's page 1028, but that only works in my Bible. So, so in Haggai chapter 2, in my Bible, this is headed up, the coming glory of the temple. And this is the context to this. Once again, the context is really important. Is that the people of Israel suffered a, uh, an exile from their homeland in Babylon. It was prophesied that they would for 70 years. And this is after that period when they were allowed to come back to their homeland. And Nehemiah was involved in the rebuilding of the temple and, and bringing everything back together. And there were prophets around at the time who brought the word of God to the people of Israel who had been disbanded but had now been brought back together again. Yeah. And um, Haggai is speaking into this period and he says, um, we're going to jump in at verse 4. He says to them, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, who is one of their leaders, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all the people of the land, declares the Lord. And he says, work, for I am with you. That's the first thing. I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Well, you know, God's already said that to us this morning. Not in so many words, 
But he said, I am with you. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. So even though they'd gone through this really bad period, God had brought them back because he'd made a covenant. He brought them out of Egypt for a purpose. And do you know what that purpose was? To worship him. That's the purpose. That's still his plan. We're on plan A, God says. And then he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. That's really important to remember that because of what he's just about to say. You know, when God says fear not, you know something a bit scary is coming in the next few verses. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Wow. Really exciting, isn't it? What God was saying here was, look, I'm going to shake everything. You know, and God sometimes uses language like this. The heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. In other words, there's nothing that's going to be excluded from that which I'm going to shake. I'm going to shake the nations. Now, the writer to the Hebrews says to us, guess what? God's still going to do that. In other words, the, prof- the prophets were often speaking into the immediate situation because he was talking about the nations around them and the fact that more would come back to their homeland. But often there is a, 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 an ultimate fulfillment. And God was speaking forward in time to say, there's going to come a time when I'm shaking the nations and there's a few things to understand. First of all, what's the purpose of that shaking? Well, that's in verse 7. He says, I will shake the nations so that, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. Now, what do you think the treasures of the nations are now? People. Yeah. Now, God does say all the gold and the silver is mine. And I believe there's something in there for us to say that there will be wealth that comes in from the kingdom of this world into God's kingdom, but the purpose of that wealth coming in, it's so that we can get the true treasure in. The true treasure are God's people who are out there and have a plan and a purpose over their life, but they haven't even heard it yet. They don't even know that their names are already enrolled in the assembly of the firstborn. And our job is to go out there and tell them to find them and to bring them in. So that's the purpose of the shaking, folks. What's the plan? Verse 7. He says, and I will fill this house with glory. You know, we are to the glory of God. When people come into the kingdom of God and their lives are changed and transformed because they become new creations, they are something that has been built to the glory of God. You know, when you look around you and you see these fantastic buildings like cathedrals that were designed and purposed and built to reflect God's glory, that's you. You were designed and built to reflect God's glory, to be something for the display of his splendor. And when we all come together, Paul says to the Ephesians that we are the manifold display. We're the multifaceted, we're the variety of God's wisdom is displayed when we come together. That's the church. It's the gateway of heaven. It's how the kingdom of God comes and God is displayed to the world. And God's purpose is to bring people out of the kingdoms of this world into his kingdom so that he's glorified because he's building a house and he's building a house out of 
you and me and all those who have yet to come in. Do you know what? He can see them, but we can't. Because he can see the end of time from the beginning. When you don't live inside time, you can see the end and the beginning all at once. And God can see all of those people. So when you meet them, the Holy Spirit says, that's one of them. Because the Holy Spirit knows what's in store for them tomorrow and the next day and the next day and what they will become for his glory. How wonderful is that? When God puts someone on your heart, all he's doing is saying he's giving you a little glimpse of the purposes that God has. And I want to encourage you to ask of the Spirit that when I meet people who I feel are open, just to give me a glimpse of what the purpose God's got for them. And you know what? He will. He'll give you specifics. And you'll start speaking into people's lives and say, this might sound strange, but I know that God's got something for you. I know that God's got this for you. And it means stepping out on a limb. But you know what? Something's going to go in their heart because in their heart of hearts... That purpose is already there. It's in seed form. It just hasn't been germinated yet. And your word dropping in will germinate that seed. And it could be the moment when they say, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I want to become part of the kingdom of God. I want to receive this gospel. I'm ready. Sometimes we just don't know when that moment is, but you know what? Our words can unlock those moments. So we need to just trust the Lord and be sensitive and ask him to give us eyes to see what's going on in the spiritual realms around unbelievers. Because there is something going on all around. There's a kingdom of this world. The kingdom of darkness is trying to hang on to them. But the angels are ministering, saying, they're ready. Give them up. They're ready. And you're there as the deal closer to come in and say, come into the kingdom of God. Let me show you Jesus. He's changed my life, and I know the purpose he's got for you in your life. What a privilege to lead people to that. Someone had the privilege of bringing you in. If you could go back to them now and show them everything that that you've become and all that God's done through you to bless others, how would they feel about that moment? We just can't see ahead, but we have to trust that it'll be there. Trust the Lord. And very importantly in this passage, he ends with this. He starts with fear not. Okay, speaking to God's people, he said, I'm going to shake everything. Don't be afraid. And then he says right at the end, he says, just to top and tail it for you, I will give peace. In this place, I will give peace. You know, even though this world will shake, this house will know the peace of God. God. This house will know the peace of God. And the third thing I want to talk about is, so first thing was the context in which we live. The second thing is the company in which we stand. If you just want to run forward back to Hebrews 12. The third thing is this, the core of who we are. Because a kingdom that cannot be shaken, you've heard that expression, Shaken to the core? I think it means this. You get shaken so much that only the core's left. So I want to get you to consider this morning, what's at my core? What's the core of who I am? And um, I'm a, by trade, I'm a financial planner, just like Phil. We're trained um, in helping people plan ahead for their finances, aren't we, Phil? It's a great privilege to be able to do that because you can really help people achieve things that they dream about doing if they just plan properly and that's what you're there to do but often when I meet someone for the first time and I sit down and I'm trying to get to know them one of the things I ask them is this I say look if you could just pick three things that matter in life to you boil it down to three things what would those three things be and I would say more than more often than not most people will say to me three things family health and wealth And they might express it slightly differently, 
but it just boils down to those three things. And I think there are, th there are three things that make us tick that are really important to us. Being in good health, our having our family, and having enough to live on, having a provision. And that's why often God will speak to us about those things, because they really do affect our lives. But what I want us to consider is how might we get affected in those areas is if God is going to shake everything. Because if we go back to the text, he says this, verse 27, Hebrews 12, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, so we're talking about things that are, will pass away, right. not things that are eternal and will go on forever. So that includes physical things. You know, everything we have, it will pass away. Can't take it with you. It's the old expression, isn't it? It's true. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So there is a process for everybody, including us, to go through some shaking. But the purpose of that is that things that are temporal, things that are in the here and now, are not the things that remain. Does that mean God wants to take everything away from you that's not eternal? No. It means that we cannot rely on those things. And when we think about those three areas that I talked about, they are things that we can find our security and our enjoyment in. But do you know what? God has got to come above all those things. When it comes to our family, our security has got to be in the Lord first and foremost. It's a wonderful thing to have a family. It's a wonderful thing to be part of a family and to enjoy your family. I know not everybody does, but lots of people do. And to have your own family, it's wonderful. And sometimes you can get lost in, in the, the joy of that, just enjoying family and neglect the Lord. Or sometimes you can start to lean on that and say, well, that's my source of joy. That's what makes me happy, being with my family. And you know what? It is right to enjoy being with your family. However, we have to rely upon the Lord, not them, for our security. There are times when family changes. There are times when we lose family members. I've been through that. It's tough. And then you find out where your reliance is, who you're leaning on. And it can be hard to relate to family sometimes. Some people, their whole life is affected by something that was said in their family, a dispute that took place. I meet people that haven't spoke to their family for years and years and years. Because you can't walk away from that and say, well, do you know what? I'm just not going to deal with that. I'm unaffected by that. It will always affect you. But what we have to do is to draw upon the Lord and say, first and foremost, he's my family. And out of that place we can then minister to our family because we've got our priorities right. In our health, we need to be dependent on the Lord and not the doctor. It's a challenge, isn't it? Especially when you're facing chronic health issues because you can become reliant upon medication in place of relying upon the Lord. I want to encourage you, if you're struggling with a chronic health issue or, or even something that's acute, the best thing you can do is to minister to other people. Don't think about your illness and don't think your illness disqualifies you from healing someone else. Because it says in the word that we'll lay hands on the sick and they will recover. 
So the best thing you can do if you're struggling with something you haven't seen change yet is say, do you know what? I'm just going to pray for everyone I can. Whenever someone says to me that they're not well, I'm going to ask them, can I just lay my hands on you and pray? Because when you take your eyes off your own problem and, and, and you start ministering to other people, sometimes God wants to get you to that place before your breakthrough comes. And it can be easy to be sat introspective, navel-gazing, just trapped in your own situation and dealing with your own health issue. God wants you to take your eyes off that and look to others and say, Lord, who do you want me to lay my hands on? You say, how can I pray for people to be healed when I haven't been healed? You know what? It's the Spirit of God that moves through you. You've got holy hands, lay them and just let the Spirit of God do what he wants to do. And the third thing, wealth. We need to be dependent on the Lord of the tithe, not on the 90% we've got left. We're here, folks, not to accumulate wealth, but we're here to be sowers of wealth. The only reason why God will bless you with wealth is to feed your family, bread for food, and seed for sowing. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. God's given you bread for food to feed your family, and he's given you seed to sow out. So we need to have the mindset that we're here not to depend on the wealth that's sitting in our bank account, in our house, in investments, or whatever you have, or a business. That's not your provider. The Lord is your provider. If we're reliant on what's in the bank account, when the bank account takes a hit, guess what? You feel really quite unsecure. You feel really worried. It causes to stress. It's one of the biggest causes of stress within marriages, our financial issues. So we need to be dependent on the Lord and looking to him and looking to others. Because in that situation, we have to say, Lord, you've called me to be a sower. That means I need to have enough to feed my family and extra to be able to sow out to others. But if the focus is on sowing out to others, guess what? You've taken your eyes off whether you've got enough, whether concerning yourself, whether there's enough for you. Because your heart's desire just becomes to sow to others. And that's the place God wants to get you to rather than just looking at what's in your barn and is it going to be enough for what comes ahead. It's liberating. Do you know, it took a long time for me to understand that because I was brought up in my family with a mindset was that tomorrow would always bring a problem, so always save up for tomorrow. And if you can, really worry about it. The more you worry about it, the more prepared you will be for it. And then, I, and then I became a Christian. I read the word and the Lord says, tomorrow, Jesus said, tomorrow's got enough worry of its own. Yeah. Look at the birds. Look at all of creation. Does it worry? Of course it doesn't. If I'm going to take care of that, how much more important are you? Do you think I'm going to let you go without? Amen. It's simple and yet it's quite difficult yeah. sometimes just to let go and say, I'm going to look to the Lord. I'm not going to look to what's in my bank account. I'm going to believe for supernatural provision where I can see no way that the numbers add up. Do you know another joy that we have, Phil and I, is that we tell people and we train people in getting their numbers to add up and planning ahead and that's all right and good, but we live in a kingdom where sometimes the numbers don't add up, do they, Phil? (laughs) Because God's economy doesn't work that way. God's economy, sometimes he multiplies the numbers and and when your figure's orientated, you say, I'm not not quite sure how that happened. (laughs) Because I've I've run the numbers and that doesn't work. Because God is the God of the impossible. And he's already said that to us today. 
So I think the key in all of those things, I'm urging you to look to the Lord in all those things, but I think the key is what God has spoke to us already. One of the things that the Lord spoke to us about was looking to him. If you just go back to the beginning of Hebrews 12 for me. It can be hard to hear someone saying to you, trust the Lord for your health, when your health is a constant burden and worry to you. It can be hard for someone to say to you, trust the Lord for your wealth, when you're struggling to pay the bills. Because that's real. That's now. It's physical. Those bills have got to be paid. And it can be hard to do that when you've got other things. And there's one key that we have to bear in mind. The Lord's already spoken it to us, and we're going to read it now. In verse 12, let's read from the beginning. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's all those spirits of the righteous that we read about, that are around the throne when we approach, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You say, how do I, how do I rely on the Lord? Just look at him. It really is that simple. Yeah. Look at the Lord. You know, when um, Peter was sinking in the water, you know that story when Peter walked on the water? I know we often remember it as Jesus walking on water. I like to remember it as the only guy who ever walked on water who wasn't God. Peter was just like you and me. In fact, he wasn't even full of the Holy Spirit at that point, And he walked on water. That's amazing. But he walked on water until he started looking at the wind. Do you know he didn't look at the waves? A lot of people remember that story, that he looked down and thought, hang on, I'm walking on water. And then he lost it and he sank. He didn't do that. He looked at the wind that was coming towards him. He was looking at something that was coming in opposition to him. He was in the middle of a storm. And that's when he started to sink. When you look at the things that are opposing you, that's when your faith starts to ebb away. And then Jesus came and he says to Peter, I'm not quoting, but I believe this is what he said to him. Peter, look at me. Look at me. And he held out his hand. And when he looked at Jesus, I don't believe it's the hand that pulled him up. I believe that he looked at Jesus and something changed within him. And he said, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. And that was, the pur- that was the purpose that Jesus had for him in that moment. It wasn't first and foremost to pull him up. It was first and foremost to get his eyes back on him. Because that's how he stepped out of the boat in the first place. He saw Jesus and he went, I'm going to go to him. Didn't even look at the water. And that's why looking at him sounds so simple and yet it's profound and powerful. When you come into the assembly of the firstborn, you're coming to look at Jesus. Now, you can't look and stay silent. The rocks will cry out if you don't. We cry out because we look and we see, and the more we see, the more wonderful it is, and we keep declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lamb of God. Worthy, worthy is him who's crowned and seated upon the throne. And the more we see that, the more it fills our hearts to full and bursting. And that's how the Lord wants you to be, to always be looking to him. 
And all those other things, well, you know what? The promise of Jesus was, I'll sort all those out. Seek first my kingdom. Seek first the king. And all those other things will be added to you. You know, another thing, in, in, if you go back to Hebrews 6, which I think will help us in keeping our attention on the Lord when there's opposition that's coming against us. In Hebrews 6, it's talking about the certainty of God's promise. In verse 13, he starts to talk about Abraham. And he talks about how Abraham patiently waited and obtained the promise by keeping his eyes fixed on the Lord. But then in verse 19, it says this. It brings it back to us and it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. To be part of God's unshakable kingdom and to go through a time of shaking in this world, which is happening and will continue to happen, then we need to have an anchor We need to be anchored to something or someone who is in that holy place. We need to be anchored into eternity so that when we get blown around, we pull hard. If you imagine a rope that's around Jesus' waist and he's holding the other end and you're holding this end and the wind's blowing, but you're looking at him and you're pulling yourself in this life. You're pulling yourself forward closer and closer to him. And that's how you're anchored and that's how you're unshakable. Because you are tied tightly to the anchor, the unshakable king. There's a, a, a wonderful little paraphrase in Colossians 1, verse 5. It says this. The lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack, tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven. Kept taught by hope. Now, Julian prophesied this morning about the Lord restoring hopes. And he wants us to have those hopes restored because it keeps taut the rope that's tied to Jesus. He says, the lines of purpose in your lives never grow slack, tightly tied as they are to your future in heaven, kept taut by hope. You know, if the lines of purpose in your life have run slack, it's because they're tethered to something other than the eternal And they're tethered to someone other than Jesus. That might be another person. Might even be your your spouse or any member of your family. Or it could be your career, could be your job, could be anything. If that's what you're tied to, that will be shaken at some point. And your rope will will go slack. It needs to be tied tightly to the Lord. We need to be anchored to the eternal and we need to have our eyes fixed on Jesus. He's the one that will renew our hope. He'll restore our faith. And that's what the Lord spoke to us about so clearly this morning. We won't be shaken along with this world if we are tied tightly to him. And you know what, folks? What the Lord wants out of all this is for you to be secure and anchored to him so that you can reach a hand out to those that are being blown around in the wind and say, look at me, I'm tied tightly. I want to introduce you to one who cannot be shaken, to an eternal hope that cannot be moved, 
and you can lay hold of the hands, just like Jesus laid hold of Peter's hand and pulled him out. There are so many people asking questions, are disillusioned with what they thought was some kind of utopia of economic peace and prosperity that spread around the Western world. And God says, time for a shake. You've become complacent. That's exactly where the nations were when God spoke to Haggai. They'd become complacent and God says, it's time to shake things. And God's saying it again today, it's time to shake things. Thanks for joining us today. There's so much going on at Living Rock Church and we'd love for you to be involved. Search for us online and get information about upcoming events and more great teaching. Visit www.livingrock.church or search for us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.